Hi, I'm Lewis Chapman, a master's student in the Mormon Studies program at Claremont Graduate University. Today, I'll be taking a look at the Book of Onias, a prophetic text written by Mormon fundamentalist Robert Crossfield, known by his followers as the Prophet Onias. In particular, I'm going to look at how Crossfield's text transforms him from an ordinary man to a divinely ordained prophet. The text in question is a short one, but its literary style and subject matter weave a complex web of connections between Mormon doctrine, the institutions of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and Onias himself, this peculiar Canadian convert whose life is bound up with some of the most infamous institutions and events of Mormon fundamentalism. Alongside this book, I'll show you snippets of an interview with Crossfield that I found online, recorded sometime around the summer of 2021. We'll hear from him about the meaning of his prophecies as we try to decipher their functions and learn what the text has to say. Robert Crossfield was born in 1929 in Alberta, Canada, and converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints during an extended illness around 1948. In 1961, Crossfield claims to have received direct revelation from God that he was a holy prophet, and, most notably, that Doctrine and Covenants 132, the Edict of Plural Marriage, was still to be obeyed by the faithful. And I received the first revelation. The Spirit came very strongly on me, and I, I just picked up the pen, and I just wrote down the first revelation, which is the second uh, section in the uh, uh, the uh, second book uh, of commandments and I had pondered I had read this, uh, the doctrine and covenants very thoroughly and I realized that there was there was no excuse in the doctrine and covenants that we were not living the law of plural marriage known outside the Mormon tradition as polygamy this practice was formally abolished in the mainline church in 1890 and it is this decision that hangs most heavy in the minds of Mormon fundamentalists for whom the abolition of plural marriage constitutes the church's great damning apostasy. Crossfield is no exception. On January 17, 1963, God tells him, Behold, I say unto thee, Thou art desirous of another wife, which thing is pleasing in my sight, but thy garments are not yet fully clean, and on occasion thou dost list to the temptings of Satan. Prepare thyself more fully for this, for this is in fulfillment of the commandments I have given to the children of men, which if they keep in holiness, their reward shall be great. Crossfield's polygamous notions made him an ally to nearby fundamentalist communities, many of whom took refuge in Crossfield's home of rural Canada after fleeing persecution in the United States. Crossfield began associating with a branch of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints based in Creston, British Columbia, but broke with them in 1975 after a revelation that he, not the leaders of the FLDS church, was the true prophet of God whose authority was final. In his private writings, he would insinuate that he was the infamous one mighty and strong, charged to set the house of God in order in preparation for the end times. Like other fringe religious leaders, Crossfield is concerned greatly with eschatology, and he understands his prophetic role to be entwined intimately with God's plan for the end times. Well, the time of the end is coming. I don't know exactly when it's coming because the Lord has not revealed the time and the time and the date because it can vary according to the 
wickedness and the righteousness of man. Right now, uh, the Lord is dividing the good from the bad, and uh, they will eventually up, land up together so that he can destroy the wicked and leave the, the good uh, here on the earth so that he can reign for a thousand years uh, for, as, a, uh, as the king of the earth, and uh, there will be uh, uh, the millennium, is called, the thousand years, which means millennium, that is going to be where there will be peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Crossfield was excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1972 after the publication of the Book of Onias. Ten years later, he would go on to found the School of the Prophets in Salem, Utah, an organization which takes its name from a quaint little educational institution founded by Joseph Smith during the Mormon days in Kirtland, Ohio. The school's most famous alumni were Ron and Dan Lafferty, two Mormon fundamentalists convicted of the murder of their sister-in-law and her infant child in 1984 and written about in John Krakauer's sensational true crime book, Under the Banner of Heaven. The Book of Onias was published 15 years before those events, by which time Crossfield had established himself as a prophetic authority within his community. We'll now take a look at the text in an attempt to understand where this authority comes from and how it manifests in the book. At the start of the book, Onias knows he is an ordinary guy who has somehow been chosen to receive the word of God. In his interview, Crossfield describes the astonishment he felt upon first receiving direct revelation, how could someone like him become a vessel for the voice of God? Uh, well, I, I, I felt, well, what am I doing with this, this information? Why is it coming to me? I'm just a, uh, actually just a, a very ordinary person, very low on the uh, scale uh, because my education wasn't complete uh, because my father had, uh, had had a heart attack and I had to take over his... Uh, business when I was in grade 11 in, in school. The very first revelation in the book of Onias, delivered just four years after Crossfield began hearing God, calls attention to the conflict between God's almighty prophecy and the normalcy of the man chosen to receive it. Paradoxically, Crossfield's ordinariness elevates the significance of his work. On March 31, 1963, God tells Crossfield that he has prepared this work, quote, even in your weakness, unquote. In the first chapter of the book of Onias, God elaborates on the significance of having chosen Crossfield to be his prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have sent is but dung, and for this reason ye esteem him not. But for this reason I use those that are weak and not learned in the ways of men. For if a man come in his wisdom, ye shall say it is of man, for by his wisdom he doth obtain this knowledge. But if I send one who is not learned, Behold, ye cannot say by his own wisdom he doeth this thing, then is it not of God? Here, Crossfield inverts his own weakness and transforms it into prophetic authority, echoing other figures from Mormon scripture who were called to greatness despite their humble station. Crossfield is ordinary, yes, but he is biblically ordinary, ordinary in a way that makes him the perfect candidate for divinely ordained authority. To non-Christians, this may seem a strange sort of logic, but I think for people immersed in the stories of the Bible and the Book of Mormon, it is as natural a narrative move as any. 
But if Crossfield has authority over the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then he is posing a challenge to others who also claim that authority. And nobody has a stronger hold on that claim than the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And as long as they do not acknowledge him, and of course, they excommunicated him in 1972, his writings must explain why he is a true prophet and they are not. In March of 1962, Crossfield addresses his prophecy to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints directly, focusing most vehemently on its highest authorities. Hearken, O ye elders of my church, yea, even the presiding high council of my church, yea, and even they who call themselves the first presidency. Gird up your loins round about yourselves and seek counsel from me. Beware, lest ye stumble and fall and others take your place, for ye are nigh ready for destruction, for ye seek my voice in the high places, and thy words come back to thee as brass. To Crossfield, these authorities have been damaged by actions that were not sanctioned by God. In November of 1964, Crossfield decries the creation of assistantships to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, the authority of elders over bishops in the promotion of church welfare, and other structural issues that, because they did not arise from direct revelation, are illegitimate in his view. Contrast this with Crossfield's world, in which he is the sole authority on account of his prophetic power. To a Mormon fundamentalist with reactionary tendencies, Crossfield seems a lot more like Joseph Smith than does the enormous bureaucracy of Mormon high command. Highlighting this distinction is a useful tool to channel fundamentalist grievances over LDS structure into support for a particular person's authority. Crossfield spends the entire book calling for repentance from all peoples, but he challenges mainline Mormon authorities most vehemently for what he believes are failures of leadership caused by the absence of God's guidance, failures for which Crossfield is the rectifying agent. From the 1962 passage, Beware, even the president of my church, even David O. McKay, for he pretendeth revelation, for he doth know, and I your savior know, he receiveth no revelation. He receiveth inspiration, to guide my church, and this for the sake of the righteous, for my house will not be left desolate, for I will raise up one mighty and strong among you, having the scepter of justice in his hand, who shall grind in pieces all those who would oppose my work, for the prayer of the righteous shall not go unheeded. This is a pretty inflammatory statement. Here, Crossfield denies the prophetic authority of the president of the church, whom most members of the church consider prophet, seer, and revelator. He promises destruction unless McKay and the upper echelons of LDS authority repent and cede to his authority. Here is also the reference to the one mighty and strong, a mysterious and unspecified apocalyptic archetype who looms large in the Mormon fundamentalist imaginary and who many Mormon fundamentalists have claimed to be over the years. It is not hard to imagine here that Crossfield sees himself as the one mighty and strong, a walking, talking Jeremiah, tasked with restoring a fallen church in preparation for the end times. The overall theme is, is, that, uh, is to make us aware that we should repent and uh, follow God, and then he gives you many reasons why you should do it, uh, giving you the uh, as, as much po as possible that we're able to comprehend at this time because we are uh, mortal beings and he is God and his intelligence is so far above ours that 
it's very difficult for us to understand a lot of the things that he has to tell us. Even outside the explicit mentions of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Crossfield weaves undercurrents of this institutional critique throughout the text. Every mention of a return to God's commandments, of the apostasy, of a falling away, can be read as a reference to the mainstream churches, and more specifically, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints' decision to do away with the practice of plural marriage. Crossfield does not need to explicitly mention Doctrine and Covenants 132 in order to remind his audience what they believe. These allusions, alongside his more pointed polemics directed at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, are enough to get the job done. We've seen how the Book of Onias uses biblical logics to assert Crossfield's authority, and how the text places that authority in conflict with that of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in order to further legitimate that prophetic authority and create resonance with common grievances held by Mormon fundamentalists. There's one more aspect of the text I want to examine, and that is its calls for secrecy. In three separate locations within the text, God commands Crossfield not to share the details of his revelation with specific people or groups. In May of 1961, the second revelation in the book of Onias, God commands Crossfield not to share his revelations with David O. McKay, quote, for he pondereth these things you have sent him in his mind, which seems to indicate Crossfield's belief that the president of the church is aware of his need to repent and of the imminence of the end times as described in the book of Onias. In August of 1961, God tells Crossfield, quote, show not these revelations unto the wicked, for they shall destroy thee. These revelations are given to the righteous only, end quote. From a sociologist's perspective, the function of this passage is clear. It tells the reader that they are righteous and that those who are not readers are wicked. This clear-cut, morally-flavored, in-group, out-group distinction performs a similar function to the text's polemic against the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by highlighting difference between opposing parties and similarities between members of the text's audience. Finally, in November of 1961, God tells him not to share his revelations with a man God identifies as his servant Radomak, quote, "...for he is rebellious and has not kept all my commandments." Nevertheless, because of his many grievous afflictions, I have supported him. End quote. I could not identify Radamach, so it's hard to further contextualize this statement. If you know who Radamach is, get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. God's calls to secrecy here are puzzles within the text, and as such, they can reveal more information about it. On the one hand, the preservation of secret knowledge creates a bond between the author of the text and its readers. Those edicts are an effective tool for uniting group members around common knowledge which they are forbidden to share with members of the outgroup. On the other hand, the fact that two of these commands are directed towards specific people might point to a more immediately instrumental function of secrecy. Crossfield keeps his revelation a secret from McKay, perhaps because he is afraid of excommunication, and he keeps it secret from Rodemach due to some unknown factor, possibly personal distaste, or the instability of Rodemach's, quote, grievous afflictions, unquote. Robert Crossfield was by his own account an ordinary man, transformed into a prophet by the gift and power of God. In the book of Onias, he channels his frustration with the mainstream church into a series of prophetic screeds that elevate him, critique the church from which he came, and negotiate the politics of Crossfield and his followers as they relate to the world around them. 
There is certainly more worth exploring within this text, just as there is more worth exploring within the world of Mormon fundamentalism more broadly. The Book of Onias here is a case study in how a text can transform its author and give its readers a sense that they are part of a movement that will change or even save the world. It's not for me here to judge whether Crossfield is truly hearing the voice of God. In the interview I watched, he is 92 years old, and he does not carry himself with the furious fervor we imagine these prophets to have. He looks sad. At one point, he struggles for almost 10 seconds to find the word stationary, but he gives up and settles on paper. But when he talks about Mormon doctrine, his understanding of the role of the Melchizedek priesthood and the end times, his eyes light up and his body animates. He doesn't lose his place in his sentences. He barely pauses, and he barely even closes his eyes. It's hard not to notice. Robert Crossfield and the School of the Prophets are connected to some truly heinous acts, and Crossfield himself possesses a suite of fairly reprehensible beliefs, particularly concerning race. But, if we believe that understanding Mormon fundamentalism is a worthwhile endeavor, and I do, it's important that we understand it on its own terms, that we read the text in a way that allows the text's own voice to come through, and that we examine its historical and political context for insights into our modern religious landscape. Thanks for listening. It's very hard to describe. The Spirit comes upon you, and things come to your mind as evidenced by the Spirit of the Lord. And it, uh, it envelops you uh, to the point you don't have any doubt that it is from the Lord. Lose your mind, you're gonna lose your mind.